Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are continuing through the book of Revelation. Last uh, The last couple of weeks we talked about chapter four and uh, we're in chapter five now. And this is continuing that throne room scene that we had talked about before. But now while chapter four is focusing on the one who sits on the throne, which you would say is the father, now we have a shift to Jesus. We have a, a shift to the son, although he's not identified as that, right? <laughs> which will unfold. Yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure why you didn't start off with me by asking how I was doing, but um, I'm, I'm doing fine. <laughs> Is it because you had such a bad fantasy draft the other night? No, I, I dominated that again, so championship, I guess. But um, no, My I, I didn't want to bring it up yet. in our last two interviews with our other our last two weeks we've had guests on. But the episode before that, you know, we ended with me singing and you mocking me and and just <laughs> ridiculing me and you know and and it took me a while. I went to therapy and I got better and and I'm I'm almost ready to forgive you, but uh, um, got it. maybe by the end of the episode I, I will be. But uh, uh, anyway, reconciliation episode. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, chapter five is about Jesus. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so let's start by reading chapter five. Uh, let's read verses one through fourteen, and then we'll get into the, this is the heart of the message of the book of Revelation. So. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Gosh, right, seriously, so, is that, how is that not like the greatest chapter in the Bible? Yeah, right. I love, right. I love it, Revelation 5. Yeah, it, it really is. And it sets the stage for everything that's going to follow. So mm-hmm. One of the things that we need to understand as we proceed through chapter five, again, just to be reminded is that John's telling a story. And I don't like using the word story because people think, oh, story means it's maybe not even a true story. It's a narrative. He's telling a narrative. So chapter four, God's sitting on a throne. Chapter five, God's got a scroll on his right hand. Chapter five, continuing, Jesus takes that scroll because he's worthy to open it. Chapter six, Jesus begins to break the seals by which the scroll was closed. Okay, you can see this progress. Here's a story. You know, no one's worthy to open the scroll. And oh, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. And he takes the scroll and they begin to worship Jesus. And now he begins to open the scroll. 
here's this narrative progression that's taking place. So it starts with a, with a throne room scene. So there's two main things in this chapter. One, of course, is Jesus. He's receiving the worship that was given to the Father in chapter four is now given to Jesus. And then, of course, the scroll. And the importance of the scroll is going to be central to what we're going to be discussing here today. Yeah. So John says that there's this strong or mighty angel right. who asks, who's worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? This is in uh, verse two. So like, why would this angel be described as a strong angel? In my mind, I just think of angels. They're, they're all kind of the same. There's not like a higher, or I guess right. there is a hierarchy because there's archangels. <laughs> so you literally have an hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, but, but what makes this angel significant in this way? One of the things that John's going to do is he's going to weave throughout his narrative keys that help you connect passages to other passages. The idea of calling this angel a strong angel doesn't indicate anything necessarily about who he is or the nature of this angel, but it's a way of distinguishing this angel from other angels in the book. So there's two things about this angel. First off, the word strong or the words strong angel occurs seven times. I think we discussed that before. The key is going to be the fact that it occurs seven times, but it only occurs in three different passages. So it occurs once in this passage, chapter five, verse two, but then it's going to occur five times in chapter 10. And that's going to be really important, but I won't get into it now. We'll get into it when we discuss chapter 10. And then it's going to occur once again in chapter 18. So there's your seven occurrences of it. So that's one of the things that John's going to use this strong angel in this title seven different times. But the key is that it only occurs in these three passages. And these three passages are meant to be read in light of one another. And we'll explain the importance of that. When we get to chapter 10, there'll be something important about that. And we have chapter 18, there'll be something important about that. But we'll save it for later. So is this something where it's it's just unique to John and wanting to identify a certain angel? Or is strong angel maybe a title that you would see? I, I, I'm trying to think in, in other yeah. biblical passages, you don't see that. But even outside, is this something where there's like a second temple or an apocalyptic idea? Or is this just something unique that John's doing? I think it's something unique that John's doing. I'm not aware, but I'd have to think about it more carefully. If mm -hmm. this happens in second temple literature or things of that nature, but I don't think it does. Okay. So John, he knows that this scroll is important and he even like weeps mm -hmm. because no one can like open it up. And so he knows the, it's not just the scroll, but it's the opening of it is mm -hmm. the thing that's important. So he weeps because no one's able to open it and, and to look at this thing. Is it like, why is this? I don't know. Like, how would he know that this is something that's important? This seems yeah. very rare. It's like this new artifact that pops up and now he's freaked out because no one knows what to do with it. Well, again, he's telling a narrative. He's telling a story. And in the story, it's easy to for us to stop and go, okay, chapter four, God's worshiped. He's on a throne. Chapter five, Jesus is worshiped. He's, he receives the worship that was given to the Father. Great, let's go on to chapter six. The narrative begins to center on the scroll. And we mm -hmm. know that the scroll is important. The question like, how did John know it's important is secondary. The, okay. The point it of that matter. is, yeah. it doesn't matter. The point is that it is important. And we know it's important because well, it's in the father's right hand. So that tells you that it's important because obviously it's in God's right hand. I mean, remember, John does not describe God sitting on the throne. No. It's like a Jasper stone, like an emerald in appearance. It's a rainbow around the throne. But then all of a sudden it's like, well, he did have a scroll in his right hand. So pointing that out all by itself tells you that the scroll is important. And then, of course, John begins to weep because no one's able to open the scroll or to mm -hmm. look into it. And it suggests that whatever's on the scroll, it's very important. And we need to know its contents. But John's like, oh, no, we can't know its contents because no one can open it. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is found worthy to open the scroll. Now, the next thing to note, by the way, is he's worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals because he was mm -hmm. slain. And that further heightens the significance that the reason why Jesus is worthy to open the scroll is because 
he is slain. He was slain. Hmm. It's interesting too, because I'm, I'm thinking about this passage and I'm asking different questions hmm. that I've actually ever asked of this Good. before. Yeah. So like, Jesus the Raiders, is, ever wins the Super Bowl? No, no, it, probably not. Yeah. Good thing we had 83. Uh, <laughs> I was five years old. We have Jesus who's worthy because he was slain mm-hmm. to open the scroll. But it's interesting because we just come off this chapter with God who is mm-hmm. holy, right, holy, right. holy. The Lord God almighty. He has all the might and, you know, he, he was and is and is to come. It's, it's defining like this, uh, like this everlasting transcendent being transcendent being yes, yes. who is he's worthy of worship because he created all things and by his will, they exist. And for some reason, the father's not the one. I mean, you, you would say yeah. like, yeah, he's worth, he, he would be worthy to do it, but why isn't he doing it? Well, uh, I it's think, just, it's, yeah, it's an interesting question. And I guess the answer to that question is, the father's not worthy to open the scroll because he made the rule that the one who's worthy to open the scroll is the one okay. who was slain. Okay. Right? So in this transcendence, we would distinguish between the father, son, and the spirit by saying, yeah, the father's not even worthy to open it. Cause John's like, like I looked everywhere and I couldn't find anyone worthy to open it. And well, it's in the father's right hand. I yeah. mean, you know, th- uh, that implies that the father's not worthy to open it, but that's because he made the rule saying the way, the one who's going to be worthy to open this is going to be the one who was slain. Yeah. 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 Uh, good. So, in chapter six, we know that the the scroll starts opening. It, mm-hmm. it, you know, you have these seven seals. What do we suspect, though? Maybe at this point, is on the scroll, or even I, I don't know. We're, we're not really told the contents of the scroll later. We just know that the seals are broken. Uh, we are told the con- that that's going to be one of the keys. Yeah, that's okay. one of the keys. So a difference between understanding the Book of Revelation as like this prophetic futuristic thing, and understanding it as a narrative that John's telling, whether it has to do with the future or, the, or not is understanding the, the way John's telling the story. So we commonly think, okay, the scroll, what's on it is not important. What's important is that he breaks the seals and something then happens in chapter six and then the beginning of chapter eight. But the scroll is going to come back into play in chapter 10 and John's mm-hmm. going to eat it. Okay. And there's an argument, is it the same scroll or not? It's absolutely the same scroll. And I'll discuss the reason why it's the same scroll in chapter, when we get to chapter 10. But then John eats it. Well, eating a scroll is a prophetic act. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing that Ezekiel does in mm-hmm. Ezekiel 2 and Ezekiel 3. And then John's told, now go prophesy. That's what Ezekiel was told after he ate the scroll. And so John's prophesying is the contents of the scroll. And mm-hmm. the question is like, well, what does he prophesy? Well, I, it, that's at least the account of the two witnesses in chapter 11. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but that's okay. And whether it goes on longer or not, that's to be disputed. I think I don't think it does. I think it's the contents of the scroll is the prophecy of chapter 11, which is the account of the, of the two witnesses. So you said, I think this. So yeah. is there a consensus on this or is this one of those things where there's uh, multiple you know, ideas among scholars? There's going to be multiple ideas only because it doesn't. It's kind of like in the Genesis account, you have the six days, the first six days, and they all end. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Yeah. The seventh day doesn't end mm-hmm. because there's no there was evening, there was morning, the seventh day. Well, you have the same kind of thing happening here. That, that why I'm I'm going to assume it's widely agreed that the account of the two witnesses in chapter eleven is the prophecy, but it, when does that end? It, well, it's never explicitly stated, but I think it ends with the end of the beginning of the seventh bowl, of the seventh trumpet. The contents of the scroll then. So, you know, GB Care lists out four different ideas, which some of them overlap as to what the contents of the scroll is. It's the book of life. I, I don't have a problem. I think the, the scroll and the book of life may be synonymous. Mm-hmm. And we have, of course, in the book of life are the names written of all those who follow the Lamb. Carrot also says maybe the scroll contains the revelation of things that John's been charged to communicate. Some say that the scroll is like the Old Testament. 
And some say that the scroll is God's redemptive plan. I would certainly say it's God's redemptive plan. It's God's will. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that the scroll is being described as like a last will and testament. It's got seven seals. That's common in the Roman world for a last will and testament. This is God's will. It's God's redemptive plan. And the question is, remember we discussed last time, and that is the throne of God's in heaven in chapter four, but it comes down to the new creation in chapter 21 and 22. And why the delay? Well, the delay is because the nations have not yet been redeemed. So in one sense, you can say the contents of the scrolls, how's God's will going to unfold? How are the nations going to be redeemed? Another way of saying it is, is how is Eden going to be restored? How is the new Jerusalem going to come down out of heaven? What's God's plan for redeeming and restoring the creation? Romans chapter eight, you know, how's God going to do this? And what's his plan? And I think the answer is the account of the two witnesses. So one of the elders, he then says to John, don't weep because the lion, the one uh, from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. And so you definitely have like an Old Testament, like a Genesis callback here, the, the, the lion, the tribe of Judah and the root of David. So there's this old covenant, you know, language that's an identification that's now being associated with Jesus. Yes, no doubt about it. So the line from the tribe of Judah comes from Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. Jacob is describing all of his children, and he describes Judah as a lion, which is the indication that Judah is going to become the kingly tribe, And it's, uh, which is actually, there's a lot there. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but that, that's a fun conversation. In late Second Temple Judaism, so we say Second Temple Judaism, and I know we used that word just or that phrase a few minutes ago. What we mean by that is the first temple was the temple built by Solomon, 9th, 10th century BC. That temple was destroyed about 586 BC. The second temple was then rebuilt. So the temple was then rebuilt. That becomes the second temple in about 516, 515 BC. And it's that temple that exists at the time of Jesus that Herod had been elaborating and adorning. So we call this the second temple period. In particular, we usually refer to the second temple period, like maybe after the end of the Old Testament, before the beginning of the new but it, no, it does overlap the end, of, end of the Old Testament era. So we call this the Second Temple period. And then we say Second Temple Judaism because we're referring to things that are outside of the biblical text in the Jewish world that certainly would have been influential at the time of Jesus and the New Testament there. So in Second Temple Judaism, the lion became the prime symbol for the Messiah. The lion from the tribe of Judah, he's the one who has overcome. Oh, awesome, great, this is great. Now that he's the root of David, of course, alludes to Isaiah chapter 11, verses one, uh, verse 1 and verse 10. So together, the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David are just two ways of signifying that Jesus is the true king of Israel. Mm -hmm. Okay. The strange things that happen, and I yes. think this oftentimes gets overlooked, and this yes. is actually a theme that we'll probably see. I know we'll look at it again, like in chapter 7. Uh, John hears that there's going to be this lion, but he looks and he sees a lamb. Yes. And that's significant, I mean, in so many ways in terms of contrast and, and, and whatnot. Yes, it's really important for a number of reasons, and you hit on it very very well. The first is that John's, this is the most explicit example of John hearing and seeing. Sometimes he sees and then he hears, but usually he hears something and then he sees something. So, and But what he hears and what he sees don't appear to go together. They appear to even almost conflict or contrast. Mm -hmm. So he hears that a lion from the tribe of Judah is overcome. So he looks and everyone's expecting he's going to see a lion, but he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And the key is that the two things, we know the two things are not different. We know that Jesus is the lion, and we know that he actually is a lamb that was slain, uh, the lamb that was slain, of course, from Isaiah 53. And the idea then is, and this is the key, that Jesus is the lion because he was the lamb. 
In other words, the way he became the lion is by being the lamb that was slain. I'll say it again. The way he became the king is by being the lamb that was slain. And just to a nod to another reason why we don't read Revelation literally yeah. is because Jesus is literally not a lion or a lamb. Right. This is symbolic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we know what the symbols are and there's just no mm -hmm. question about it. And ironically, those who argue for literalism at all costs have no problem saying Jesus no. is a lion, but he's not actually a lion or Jesus yeah. is a lamb. He's, you know, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as the gospel of John the Baptist says in the gospel of John. No one looked and saw a lamb. They saw Jesus. So why does John do this sort of thing, invoke these kind of literary devices with hearing and seeing? Why, why wouldn't he just tell us? Because it's, it gets kind of confusing to the audience. Like, why would I? Oh, it's, it's a, lion, a lion. Oh, no, it's actually a lamb. That's just weird storytelling. Yeah, but this is John's way of conveying to you the significance of Jesus as the king. Hmm. So the contrast, of course, between a lion and a lamb couldn't be greater. I mean, right? A lion's a ferocious predator and the lamb is the prey and a lamb suggests weakness. What's critical, though, is this, is that Jesus is introduced here as the lion from the tribe of Judah. But this is the only time in the entire book of Revelation that Jesus is called a lion. He's injured. Hey, behold, the lion's overcome. Don't worry. And then he's never called a lion the rest of the book. Whereas we hear lamb language. Yes, but lamb language 27 yeah, times yeah. is applied to Jesus. So John's like, hey, the lion's overcome. Okay, cool. We got our king. But our king is a lamb. And John emphasizes the lamb. Uh, in fact, G.B. Caird, who I mentioned earlier, says, wherever the Old Testament says lion, we now read lamb. Wherever the Old Testament speaks of the victory of the Messiah, or the overthrow of the enemies of God, were to remember that the gospel recognizes no other way of achieving these ends than the way of the cross. Hmm. So this is really significant. Hey everyone, we wanna thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we wanna remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. So this idea of lamb, I don't know, I always think back to Isaiah 53 in this right. suffering servant poem. Is that, is that what we could say? Maybe that's part of the imagery? This is dominant imagery in the early Christian movement for Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. So you have in the book of Isaiah a series of servant songs. Isaiah 42 verse 1 uh, is a servant song. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him and he'll bring forth justice to the nations. Now as Christians, we immediately go, oh, this is clearly Jesus. This, there's no doubt about it. It's Jesus. But if you keep reading now, let's go to Isaiah chapter 44 verse 1. So Isaiah 44, verse 1 begins, and it says, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Now, you are probably aware, Vinny, that you know in um, poetical literature, and the prophets often use poetry, mm -hmm. uh, you have two lines that repeat one another. And the second line usually repeats, and it maybe adds something, but not usually. They're kind of, they're overlapping and paralleling. And, and parallel language. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen— Jacob is the one who wrestles with God, and his name is changed to Israel. So Jacob and Israel are the same person. So notice that Jacob is my servant. 
Israel whom I have chosen. The servant is Israel. And if you're talking to any Jewish individual about the servant and you go, oh, it's, it's clearly Jesus. Look at Isaiah 53. They're going to go, what are you talking about? It's, it's about Israel. And they're right because it is about Israel. It says it explicitly. So then you go to the next servant song, Isaiah chapter 49. And again, this is clearly Jesus for us Christians. And this is very significant. Verse one, listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples who from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. He's made my mouth like a sharp sword and the shadow of his hand, he's concealed me. He's also made me a select arrow and he has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel. When it says you are my, my servant Israel earlier in the book of Isaiah, the word you is always plural, mm. referring to you, Israel, as a people, as the people, as the nation. And all of a sudden now in Isaiah 49, it becomes singular. And of course, you in English can be singular or plural. You can't tell. But in Hebrew, you can tell the difference between the, the word you, whether it's singular or plural. All of a sudden, it turns to singular. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have told in vain. I spent my strength for nothing. I'm in verse four now. And, van, and for vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from his womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, Jacob being Israel, so that Israel might be gathered to him for I'm honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. And he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I'm going to also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may, may reach to the ends of the earth. And of course, this is quoted by Simeon in the book of uh, gospel of Luke as applied to Jesus. Paul actually quotes verse six to apply it to himself also. So in other words, I am the light of the nations. Remember, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then he says to the disciples, uh, you are the light of the world. All right, so then we go to Isaiah 52. Uh, and actually, this, the next servant song begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Mm -hmm. And we won't read the whole thing because we don't. Isaiah 52, verse 13 begins by saying, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, the reason why that's significant is because the phrase high and lifted up only occurs twice in the book of Isaiah. The first time high and lifted up occurs, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter six. It was a description of God. So here's exalted language for the servant. All right, but then he goes on to Isaiah 53 and verse two. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Verse three, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse four, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep like that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And it goes on, verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich men in his death, but he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So the whole idea of this servant passage is that the suffering of, well, the suffering of Israel, though, although it's become singular in chapter 49, is then manifested in the person of Jesus himself. Jesus takes on the suffering of Israel. And note, he was pierced for our transgressions. And I think this is one of the things that, I'm not sure how this would go for a modern debate with, with a Jewish reader, but note, the suffering servant here is not suffering for his own sins. It says he was crushed for our iniquities. Mm -hmm. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And then it describes his suffering 
uh, as, a, as a lamb. Then you go really quickly here to the book of Acts, Acts chapter eight. We have this interesting episode here. In Acts chapter eight, all of a sudden there's an Ethiopian eunuch and he's driving in his, in his carriage away from Jerusalem. Remember, Ethiopians have a heritage of being Jewish back to the Queen of Sheba in those days. So he was worshiping in Jerusalem. He's on his way back. And all of a sudden, verse 26 of, of Acts chapter eight says, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, you know, go south to the road that, that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he went and there was an Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 29, it says, then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up and he saw that he was reading the Isaiah the prophet. And Philip says in verse 30, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I, unless someone guides me? Then it says, verse 32, the passage of scripture that he was reading was Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to slaughter as a lamb before it shears his silence. So he did not open his mouth. So verse 34, the eunuch said to Philip, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this of himself or of someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth in verse 35 and began and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So this becomes a central text of early Christianity as well, that Jesus is the lamb that was slain for the salvation of the world. So picking up on the idea of the lamb that was slain, it's interesting to, you know, you can look, you look at the story of Jesus and Jesus was slain. He literally died. Yes. And that's why he was literally resurrected. He just merely appeared to die. What we see though, in this description though, it's Jesus was a lamb as if it had been slain. It doesn't say that it was a slain lamb. That's an interesting distinction. Right, right. In fact, what did your translation say again on that? Yeah, I was in the ESV. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Right, so exactly. same, same kind of same, idea. Same idea yeah. New Revised Standard is going to say a lamb standing as if it had been saved. So same yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. The reason why is because John sees a lamb that was killed, but it's standing there. Hmm. And it, was, it, it looked like it had been slain, but it's not dead. It's alive. So would this appear, would, would this be like resurrection language? Exactly. Doubting Thomas, like, no, look at my hands. There's still yeah, uh, exactly. wounds there. It's, I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore mm -hmm. okay. from chapter one when, John, yep. when Jesus yep. appeared to John. It looked like it was dead. It looked like it had been killed, but it was standing there. This is really interesting because I think of lion and even like this is totally anachronism. I'm, I'm reading into the text now, but okay. I'm thinking of you know, modern day works of something like uh, Narnia, you know, right. C.S. Lewis's stuff. And so you're thinking of like Aslan, of, of course, a lion who's going to be this mighty animal. Mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming that, you know, I, I, they probably didn't call it the, the king of the jungle back then, but it probably had that same kind of idea. I don't know how many more animals are feared and revered <laughs> than a lion. It would have the same kind of connotation there. Like when yeah. you're thinking lion. Yes, it would. Remember, remember the four, four living creatures in chapter four. Uh -huh. uh, you, the first was like a lion. The second was like an ox. And the lion okay. was considered the, the most powerful of all undomesticated animals. So it, it was the, I don't know if they said king of the jungle. They didn't have jungles back in, yeah. in, in the Middle East, but it, it was certainly the most ferocious of all, of all the animals. What's interesting is C.S. Lewis chooses a lion, right? For yeah. Aslan, not a lamb, which makes sense because, of course, a lion portrays what you're trying to portray. Yeah, and, and there's even this good this question in the story when they encounter Aslan and he's this lion and this great lion. Susan asks, like, I thought Aslan was a man. Is he safe? I'd ask that question too. Like, you even go yeah. to the zoo yeah. and there's the lion exhibit. And I'm like, dude, there's a chasm between us. And I still don't trust this. You know, <laughs> you know like sa safety is a huge thing with a lion. Uh, and, you know, she's like, I feel nervous meeting a lion. And uh, the beaver says, safe. 
who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's yeah. the king, I tell you. Exactly, exactly. All right, so then all of a sudden we go to the book of Revelation, however, and John consistently portrays Jesus as the lamb. Mm-hmm. And the contrast is between the way Jesus does power, this would be a huge issue in the book of Revelation, uh, in the New Testament, by the way, the way Jesus does power and the way the nations do power. And I think we read before John, uh, Mark chapter 10, you know, the nations lord over those in authority, but not so among you. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. We do power differently. Remember in Mark 10, Jesus' statement that the nations rule uh, lord over those in authority comes right after the disciples say, hey, can we sit on your right and on your left when we get to Jerusalem in power? And just like, we don't do it that way. We do it differently. And I think that's exactly what the imagery of the lion and the lamb display then. It's lion power versus lamb power. And the lamb power is victory by suffering. Mm. In many translations, and we've talked about this word a little bit, uh, even going back to the letters, overcome. My tra- out of the ESV, it, it, yeah. it translates it and renders it as conquered, as does the NRSV, a lot of other translations. King James says prevailed. Uh, yeah, ESV it, says conquered. Yeah. yeah. Is there is this something where, because I know that I've, I've heard you teach on this for years, and you're constantly go. I mean, we could say conquered and overcome those. I mean, yes, those are synonymous absolutely. terms in a sense, but you always go to overcome. Right. Um, why do you choose that as being a, maybe a stronger description of Nikayo? Just because the English readers can't tell when that word occurs uh, if you change it. Okay. Words, if you trans- so the word can mean overcome or conquered. So in, in a military context, and we do have a military context in the book of Revelation, it can mean conquered. You conquered your enemies. In um, other contexts, it could be, you know, you overcame them. You overcame um, the heat. You overcame the, the tribulation that was before you, whatever the trial, you, you overcame it you conquer an enemy. So it's certainly the case. So Jesus is the one who conquered. Look, the, the lion has conquered. That's the idea of the imagery of a lion. But I prefer to translate it as overcome just so that English readers know when this particular word's being used. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. This is the third reason why Revelation 5, 5, and 6 are so important. And that is John's use of hearing and seeing that we mentioned Jesus is the Lion and the Lamb, and now John's use of overcome. So we noted in chapters two and three that each of the seven messages end with a promise to the one who overcomes. And the point is that this is the same word. To the one who overcomes, I'll grant you the right to sit down with me on my throne just as I overcame. To the one who overcomes, you're going to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And the question we asked then was, what does it mean to overcome? And what does overcoming look like? And we now have our answers to what overcoming looks like. We we don't have the answers to what what it is that we're overcoming. But now we know that what overcoming looks like. And the answer is it looks like Jesus. Hmm. He's the one who overcame. Stop weeping. But, you know, behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome. And I looked and I saw a lamb that had been slain or as if it had been slain. And the answer is the way Jesus overcame was through dying. And I can't say this enough with, with enough emphasis. Throughout the New Testament, the way God's people overcome is through sacrificial love that ultimately uh, or often ends in their death. It doesn't always end in the death. The writer of the book of Revelation was John the Apostle. He's not mm-hmm. killed for the gospel for, for Christianity. They but, try to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They tr- uh, well, tradition is that they, tradition they try to says, boil yeah, yeah. oil and all that good stuff. That right. The point, though, then is Jesus says in Matthew 24, the one who overcomes or the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And mm-hmm. overcoming is a key feature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
And one more thought, and that is Mark chapter 8, verse 34 says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. And that's not like, oh, beautiful saying, Jesus. No, that's talking about literalism here. He means take up your cross and follow him, which might not actually literally be a cross, but you get the point. I'm always wondering too, you know, it, uh, you get college graduation from a, a Christian institution and their license plate frames, you know, alumni from co- Christian college, Jeremiah 29, 11. How come Mark 8, 34 isn't that first? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, so you'd mentioned that third reason uh, why it's critical for understanding the, the concept of, of that. What, is there a you know a fourth reason or other reasons, or do we stop yes. at three because that's a holy number? Yes. So we argued in chapter, or I argued in chapter one, where it says that John saw things that must soon take place, and the question is like, well, when are these things going to take place? And some say, well, that Jesus begins to open the seven seals and break the seven seals, and some catastrophic thing happens on the earth. And that hasn't happened yet. So therefore, the breaking of the seals is something future. To which I'd say, the reason why Jesus is worthy to open the scroll is because he was slain. So if he's worthy to open the scroll, the moment he takes it, because he's slain, because he was slain, is he somebody, some, somehow going to wait 2,000 years? Well, you know, mm. I don't, I, you know, I just don't feel like it right now. You know, uh, get back to me tomorrow. It's like, no. The scroll began to be opened when Jesus took it because he was worthy to open it. And so what I argued back in chapter one was that the key event in the book of Revelation is, or events is Jesus' death and resurrection. So in chapter one, John sees Jesus and Jesus says, behold, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, don't fear. Go out there, be faithful witnesses, persevere and overcome. So also now Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and to open it because he was slain. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus becomes the key event that puts, as I said, it's a story that puts the story into motion. The events are beginning to happen and have already begun to to happen in light of Jesus. Now the question that becomes, well, what do we mean by the events? And well, let's discuss that when we get to chapter six. Okay. But, but this is interesting just to talk a little bit about what you just said mm-hmm, sure because we talked about uh and we even talked about uh with nelson crable last week about the uh, i think he mentioned the writing that you know th- this is written maybe in the 90s right uh, yeah is yeah it... i think somewhere between 85 and 95 okay probably be a, a reasonable date but if if we're saying <clears throat> if if we're saying that it was this christ event mm-hmm uh, that is being spoken about here. And it's like, why, why would we wait 2000 years? If, if John, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase mm. John is being given a vision and let's say it's 85 to 95. This is some 60 years after Jesus, the actual, after that event. Right. So this isn't something that he is experiencing that's happening in John's present. This is something that actually happened in John's youth. <laughs> this is something that happened. And it's continuing to happen and continuing to happen and then continuing to happen over the next 2000 years and continues, continues to happen to this day. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so when John is, this is an interesting thing about the literalism that we want to avoid ourselves from in the linearism because we yes. try to read the book of like, okay, this happened then John is taken up into heaven in chapter, uh, chapter four he sees this thing playing out but he actually is seeing in the past and present and future and present and future yeah so like we just need to not think about this as like this is what john's not getting a look into cameras uh into into what is happening at that present time right but it is like and this thing even how do you describe this in a way that's all-encompassing and not just uh temporal yeah all right so there's there's 
John's given a vision, remember it's an apocalypse, to say, uh -huh. this is the way it really is. What's happening in life that you see, it looks like Caesar's on the throne, but he's not, the father is. Mm -hmm. And the father's always been on the throne and always will be on the throne. So therefore the father being on the throne in chapter four isn't something future. It's something that's true of reality. And now let me tell you about what else is going on. The persecution of God's people is the way God's plans unfolding. And this is what's happening here. And oh, th this over here actually would be worshiping the beast. And guess what happens to him at the end of the story? He's telling us a narrative to understand the reality of what's going on and the reality of God's kingdom versus the reality of the kingdoms of the world. Interesting. In chapter four, we have these hymns sung to the father. Mm -hmm. Chapter five, after we have the identification of Jesus, we then have Jesus taking the scroll and, and verses seven through 14 of chapter five are Jesus taking the scroll, but then he's also worshiped with these songs that are sung to him now. That, that's right. And we have this incredibly high Christology, which means mm -hmm. the study of Jesus, right? That takes place now. Because if you'll notice the very same beings that were worshiping the father in chapter four are now worshiping Jesus. So in chapter mm -hmm. five, verse eight, it says, when he had taken the book or the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book. So the four living creatures and the 24 elders are the beings that were worshiping the father. Mm -hmm. In fact, in chapter four, it says day and night, the they four living cease. creatures, they never yeah. cease saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord mm -hmm. God almighty. Well, then they stop. And again, that's just a hyperbole or exaggeration to make a point. Now they stop and that, that worship now turns to Jesus. And in fact, if you compare the worship of the Father to the worship of Jesus from chapter 4 and chapter 5, it's basically the same thing. We did this before, but verse 12 says the Lamb is worthy to receive power, and just, it just count, right? Power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessings, seven things. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice that the Father's worthy to receive seven things mm -hmm. in chapter 4, and the seven things are almost absolutely identical, except one word's changed in chapter 4 from one word in chapter five. It's the same worship of, of the father that's now given to the lamb. Yeah. Which I've always found interesting about this as well. And it, I haven't really dug into this in my own studies. I, I have read okay. some on this because I, I wrote a paper about it in seminary, but it, here's something that I find interesting. In chapter four, there's two hymns sung to the father. Okay. So you, you have, you have a hymn in uh, my Bible font gets smaller as I get older uh, in verse Eight, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, is to come. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. And then verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things by your will they existed. So he, he gets like two hymns of praise. Mm -hmm. You then in chapter five have two instances in which the, the lamb receives hymns of praise. Mm -hmm. Number one is in verse nine, worthy are you to take the scroll, open its seal for you were slain. You know, you've ransomed people, you made them a kingdom of priests. And then you have again in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So each person receives a hymn of praise but then you have this combined right. third thing that's given to both to oh. him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor yeah. yeah in verse 13 and i just find that's one of the things that i would love to do more study on to say it's interesting when you look at like the significance of threes in terms of numbers like how come the third hymn only happens when it's both of them together yeah and i don't know if that's it's a reach it's just and that's something that's always sat with me oh interesting i've never even thought about that but that's actually yeah. a very good observation yeah, yeah. I got my, all my seminary uh, money. That's it's worth it right there. All this. Yeah, yeah. Well, your Greek professor alone was probably worth <laughs> worth the cost of admission. 
<laughs> well played. Hey, is there a significance to the fact that it's the elders who have these golden bowls of incense, which it, John tells us that the incense is actually the prayers of the saints? Yes. And in fact, the significance of this, we're going to have to wait a little bit longer, but just keep in the back of your mind two things. One, they have golden bowls. And so again, John's going to use language and repeat terms like golden bowls later on that wants you to draw back on the earlier occurrence of that expression of that phrase. And secondly, the bowls contain the prayers of the saints. And we're not going to get into it now, uh, but in depth, I believe that the prayers of the saints are going to be the cry in chapter six of the martyrs mm. under, the, under the throne in the fifth seal saying, okay. how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? That's got the prayer of God's people. How long, O Lord, when, when are you going to bring justice to us and justice for us? And I think John will help us connect that. And this will be very significant for helping us understand what's going on with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Interesting. Uh, side note, from a, a liturgy standpoint, when we look at our Roman Catholic and Orthodox friends, they'll oftentimes use incense in a, I don't, I don't know the term of the holder that they have, they swing around in their services. They'll do mm -hmm. that. Is this where that imagery would be coming from? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we're Baptist, so we don't do anything fun like that at all. <laughs> Another identification is you have the four living creatures and the 24 elders singing a new song. Mm -hmm. um, it, for me, it, that comes back to like Psalm language. Cause I, I think I remember mm -hmm. like hearing that kind of like singing a new song, uh, there is this another element of going back to old testament imagery yeah in fact the prime the first occurrence of new song is actually in the book of exodus okay so a new song represents a song sung after a military victory over one's mm -hmm. enemies the israelites come through the red sea they come out the other side and exodus chapter 15 verses 1 through 18 they sing a new song it's also of course in the psalms but it means that we have a theme of holy war and i want to be careful in saying this a theme of holy war running through the book of Revelation. So Jesus is riding on a white horse in chapter 19. This is holy war imagery. It's imagery of Jesus being the general riding into a war. The key is going to be that Jesus and the people of God don't wage war the way the nations do. The nations are waging war with violence, but Jesus is the lamb. He's suffering violence. The two witnesses have, have a war against them in chapter 11, verse 7, but they die and then rise again. They suffer violence. The people of God don't do not inflict violence. Mm. When we think about war, though, especially in Revelation, that's where that ties into the idea of Armageddon, this great battle, uh, the battle of the great dam of Armageddon, right? Is it is that where we would want to connect that? Yes, but don't think of Armageddon as like this one battle that takes place at the end of human history in the battlefields of Megiddo in northern Israel. Armageddon or warfare is actually this entire book is a warfare text. Jesus is a holy warrior. God's people are holy warriors. That's why they're counted, 144,000. Mm. They're, they're numbered because they're holy warriors. The great multitude sings a new song. They're those who have come through a military victory. But again, it's this war that's taking place back from the time of Jesus all the way through. Well, you can even go before the time of Jesus if you want. It's a war that's taking place by the act of the devil, by empowering the nations to wage war against God's people. So you can say that's Old Testament, Jesus, New Testament, and ultimately up to, to the end. Hmm. So you have this new song, this new song, it's sung by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Mm -hmm. They exalt Christ, the lamb, because he's worthy. It's this uh, verse I read a few minutes ago. And it, it's not like, you know, this is the beauty of the 
parallel construction. The father is worthy to receive worship because he created all things. Mm -hmm. But now you have the son who he was the one who, because he was slain, he purchased for God by his blood, people from all tribes and tongues and nations. So Jesus is involved in redeeming all the people who the father created. Yes. And we've discussed this before, I believe, but this will come up at various times and we'll discuss it now. I don't believe in universalism. I don't believe Mm -hmm. that you do either. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean that every person from every nation uh, is saved. There are people that still do not believe even at the end. But the first thing is this. You purchase with your blood people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we've talked about the fourfold description, the tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And now four is the number for creation. So this is all the nations of the world. And we mentioned before how this fourfold designation for the nations occurs seven times. But it's never in the same order. It's never tribe, tongue, people, and nation again. It'll be nation, tribe, people, and tongue, whatever it might be. He's going to vary the order of it. So the fact that it occurs seven times and the fact that it's fourfold, it's all the nations of the world, but it doesn't mean that it's everyone from all the nations. But here's the thing that's, that's also interesting. That's this, that nations occur seven times in the book of Revelation. The first two times, the first time here in chapter five, that you redeemed or purchased for God people from every nation. The second occurrence is in chapter seven, verse nine, uh, where we say a great, a great multitude and they, no one could count them. And they're from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. So in both those occurrences now, the people of God are from the nations. In other words, the nations are where, where we came from. We were purchased for God from the nations. The next five occurrences, however, of the nations, the nations are always waging war against God's people or against Christ and God's people. Chapter 11, they trample the holy city, verse 2. In chapter 11, verse 18, they rage against God. In chapter 12, they are the object of Christ's judgment. In chapter 14, they've drunk the wine of Babylon. In chapter 18, the Babylon's, they've been deceived by Babylon's sorcery. In chapter 20, they've been deceived by Satan. But yet then we get to the end, and we see that the nations walk in the light of the new Jerusalem, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. When you look at the nations in the book of Revelation, it's easy for us, and we have to be very careful about this going, it's us, them. I, I've said this before, one of the problems I have with dispensational end times theology, it makes us the good guys and them the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And the wrath of God's going to fall on you, but we're going to get raptured out of the way because we're the good guys. The them is from whom we came. Mm-hmm. We came from the them. And secondly, the them are the ones to whom we are to love. Mm-hmm. So much so that we lay down our lives for them, even if they kill us for loving them, because the them are the people to whom God desires to redeem. And that's the reason why the throne of God in chapter four has not yet come down in the revelation of chapter 21 of the new Jerusalem coming down because the nations have not yet been redeemed. So the object of our, of our um, mission of our love are the nations. Mm. And also even just to look like at uh, the concept of redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. If I'm reading this in a, in its, gosh, I don't want to say original context. We always want to read it that way. But if I'm the covenantal people of God, this is still something that's probably going to bring up something for me. I think the best example is looking at John chapter one, the first identification of Jesus outside of that prologue. It's it's like John the Baptist. Here's the lamb of God mm-hmm. who takes the, away the sin of the world. Right. And we oftentimes have the wrong questions when it comes to for God to love the world. And we get in these arguments, is this Calvinism or Arminianism? Does it, you know, like, like, you know, is this talking about election and what does this mean for my free will? Mm-hmm. The, the concept is he loved the world. 
not just Israel. He expanded his love to every kind of person. And, and you're not limited by your ethnicity or your race. And that's the same thing here. The, the point is he redeemed people, all kinds of people, not just one specific right. type of people or specific yeah. type of race. And like, that's the significance here. Um, and so whether it's universalism or Calvinism or Arminianism, it's like, no, those aren't the arguments that right. yeah, that's yeah, happening yeah. here. Yeah. We get, yeah. we get meddled in these things. Yeah. And remember, right. God has always loved all the nations. He, he, mm -hmm. he chose Israel because he loved the nations because Israel yes. was supposed to be the means through which the nations come to know the Lord. S same thing here also. And let me just clarify, by the way, the phrase, the title, the fourfold title, people, tribe, tongues, and nation occurs seven times. The word nations occurs 22 different times. That's why I referenced a bunch of different passages where the nations occur. So the nations occur throughout the book of Revelation. They're always in opposition to God or Christ mm -hmm. or God's people. However, the first two times, the nations are the ones from whom God's people came. Hmm. And then, of course, at the end, the nations walk by the light of the New Jerusalem. Hmm. Yeah. We move on through the text, and it, the worship of the Lamb, it really continues with this affirmation that Jesus has also not just redeemed them, but he made them a kingdom and priests yeah. for our God. Right. Which is it, like, you go back to the Old Testament story. Israel was a kingdom of priests, but it's also specifically, even, even within there, you only had certain people who could function as the priests. And as you see mm -hmm. the book of Revelation unfold, especially in the latter half, it's like, hey, guess what? We all get to do this now. We're all the kingdom and we're all the priests. It's the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Israel. Exodus 19 verses four through six, when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, they gather in the wilderness. Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the 10 commandments, and then he comes down. Now Exodus 20 is the 10 commandments. So Exodus 19, which is the covenantal description of Israel, says in verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you should be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So John is now telling us that the people of God who have come from the nations are the fulfillment of this covenant promise to Israel. Now, the key thing also is this. It says they will reign upon the earth. And some translations say they reign upon the earth. It's a present tense. Some say they will reign upon the earth. Mm. Either way, I, I tend to think that the present tense actually makes the most sense here in this passage, looking at the manuscripts and all that good stuff. It doesn't matter. God's people are called to reign. And we reign as kings and as priests, but we do so not the way the nations do. The mm. nations, as we're going to see in chapter six, we'll get to in our next episode. Believe it or not, we're going to get to chapter six in our next episode. <laughs> the nations reign by waging war, which brings bloodshed, brings famine, brings pestilence, brings death. Christ and his people reign by love, mm. by laying down their lives for the sake of the nations, by suffering and receiving suffering, and then by rising from the dead victoriously. Mm. Good stuff. Yeah, it's great. All right. We wrapped up chapter five. Look at that. That was so easy. Seriously. Yeah. If anyone had trouble with that, well, I can't help them. No, just, just, <laughs> so let me just kind of reiterate really quickly as we, as we close up. A couple of the keys. Obviously, uh, what I just said is in terms of us being kings and priests, because Jesus was victorious, he's called us to be kings and priests. But we talked about the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and that's 27 times as used in the book of Revelation. That's the way he rules. John does not use lion for Jesus any longer. Lion is used throughout the book uh, elsewhere, but it's never applied to Jesus, only here. We talked about the fact that he's worthy to open the scroll because he was slain. We talked about the fact that 
he's received worship from the very creatures that gave the worship to the Father, and that Jesus is the one who has overcome, and that his overcoming was through his dying, and that that's what God's people are called to do. And then, of course, it's a story, and the story now is going to have this movement. It goes from the throne of God, who has a scroll in his right hand. Jesus taking that scroll. He's worthy to open it. In chapter 6, he's going to begin to open it. And then the scroll is going to disappear for a couple chapters. We're going to think, oh, it was open. Like, what are its contents? I guess the contents aren't important. And the scroll will reappear in chapter 10, where John's going to eat it, and he's going to be told to prophesy. And that prophesying is the account of the two witnesses. That's the center of the book. So here's our story. How is God's will going to be um, carried out? How, how are the nations going to be redeemed? How is the new Jerusalem going to come down? And creation is going to be restored, and it's the account of the two witnesses. Uh, next week, are we getting into chapter six, or do we have a guest, or what are we doing? Next week will be chapter six. We're not going to, you know what? We're done with the guests for a while. We're done with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enough with them. That stuff got boring anyway. Those guys, yeah, whatever. Contribute anything. I was just yeah. trying to make them feel good by inviting them yeah. on, on on Vinny and Rob's podcast. Yeah, <laughs> and they're like, they're like telling everybody on Facebook, I was on Vinny and Rob's podcast. Like, okay. We're such givers. I know we are. All right, bud. I will see you next week and catch everyone later.
want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.